Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In the course of a year, Hong Kong has been transformed by a new security law. Drafted by Beijing and aimed at protesters, it has led to mass arrests of activists, lawyers and lawmakers. Political participation in Hong Kong is now more dangerous than ever and with rights and freedoms diminishing under Beijing's vast national security apparatus, is the democratic dream of Hong Kong over? Here to discuss this is Anthony Dapperin, a Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer and author of the book City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Thank you for joining me, Anthony. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. So by design, the political structures of Hong Kong have limited channels for political participation. These have been narrowed even further by the national security law passed in June 2020, which criminalizes collusion and subversion. And it defines these very broadly as well to whatever we class as being a bit convenient. So uh, what did this do to the options for protest in Hong Kong? The national security law really does seem to have been specifically tailored and targeted at acts of political protest and dissent in Hong Kong. And and even more specifically, many of the acts that people engaged in during protests that rocked the city throughout 2019. When you go through the list of the four criminal offences that are set out in the national security law, and they are a secession, subversion, terrorism, and colluding with foreign forces. And the way that they are defined and the kinds of activity that they catch, you find constantly popping up specific things that catch behaviour by protesters either in 2019 or going back to the umbrella movement of 2014 or even beyond that. Uh, So just to give a few examples to make that a bit concrete, things like occupying roads and blocking traffic, blocking access to government buildings, as was done in both uh, 2014 and 2019, is now criminalised as as an act of of subversion. Uh, Vandalising public transportation or traffic uh, infrastructure, things like uh, cutting the wires on traffic lights or or vandalising MTR stations, both things that were done uh, in the protests in 2019, are now defined as acts of terrorism. And then what's more, acts that are in support of people committing these offences. So things like providing money, donating goods, providing transportation, all the sorts of things that the quiet sort of middle class supporters of the protests last year who weren't on the front lines themselves, but who were perhaps supporting the frontline protesters um, quietly in the background by providing them various means of assistance. Well, all of that is now behavior that would be considered aiding and abetting. And so if there was someone who was committing one of these terrorism or subversion offenses, then any of the people providing support for them would also be committing the, the criminal offense of aiding and abetting them. So all sorts of activity that was previously a part of the, the very broad range of strategies that people used when they engaged in political protest and dissent in Hong Kong have now been criminalised under the new law. And it does seem that the law was specifically tailored to target that. Are the authorities going after people who are aiding and abetting, or is that option just there should they choose to exercise it? They haven't done that yet. That option is is in the background and there if they choose to exercise it. Up until now, that the targets of, of arrest under the law have been people uh, either involved on the ground in protests where they were chanting slogans or waving banners or possessing materials with slogans that the government has deemed to be illegal because those slogans incite 
secession or incites subversion, and have also covered people who've been involved in these sorts of organizing activities online. So people who have, for example, administered Facebook groups that have posted allegedly illegal material to the Facebook groups, people who have organized various activities. So sort of the, the organizers are the people that have been arrested. The other very notable group of mass arrests under the national security law have been all of the pan-democrat politicians who engaged in a, a primary election last year. And this was something that they had done in preparation for legislative council elections, so sort of our parliamentary equivalent elections here in Hong Kong that were scheduled for last year, but ultimately were postponed due to the uh, coronavirus. But in any event, in preparation for those elections, the, the pan-democrats held a, a primary to decide which among them should run for the various seats available in the election. And one of their aims was to try and win a majority, to try and win that election. And, and one of the strategies that had been discussed was that if they did win a majority, they may attempt to force the government to resign using the, the, the constitutional mechanism set out in the basic law. Well, the government said that this plan and therefore the whole primary election was an act of subversion because it was an attempt to bring down the government. And so at the beginning of this year, they went ahead to arrest everyone that was involved in that primary election, including all of the candidates that ran in that election and the people who organized it um, and the organization that, that financed it. These are the kind of people that have been arrested um, so far under the national security law, and the net hasn't yet extended to people, as, as we say, sort of aiding and abetting. But the fear has to be there that this could get quite heavy-handed. Yes, certainly. And certainly, I think from immediately the law was introduced and came into force, people were alarmed at the heavy-handed way in, in which the law has already been used to police speech. I think people were expecting a law that, that outlawed acts of violence, for example, or, or acts of secession or subversion that involved the threat or use of force. I don't think what anyone expected was that it would be used to, to police um, and to criminalise pure political speech acts. But that's indeed what had happened. Happened. And, and from indeed the, the first day that the law came into force at, at a scheduled protest that day, police produced a new warning banner, which they showed displayed to the crowds that, that had a legend on it that read, you are chanting slogans or, or waving banners that might be in breach of the national security law. And, th and this idea that suddenly overnight in Hong Kong, there were suddenly words that were forbidden phrases that were illegal to utter or have on a t-shirt or have on a banner was something that really I think was was far beyond everyone's expectations as to how broadly this law is being deployed. It's amazing how quickly they came up with that, you know, almost like here's something we prepared earlier. We've got a banner <laughs> ready to go. Exactly. Suspicions were aroused around that, yeah. So there were special circumstances that allowed Hong Kong to develop as a place where you could have protests so can you explain why the protest culture is so strong and if you think that this is going to bring an end to that? Yeah, Hong Kong is in many ways fairly unique in the world in terms of its combination of a very low level of representative democracy and, and a high level of, of rights and freedoms. And this is really a, a legacy from the British colonial era, and it was part of the package of arrangements that was negotiated when Hong Kong was handed from the United Kingdom back to China. And the arrangement was that people in Hong Kong are not free to elect the government. The government is effectively chosen by a body controlled by Beijing and the parliament 
government, the legislature, is only half democratic. The result of that arrangement is that people don't have the right to elect all of the seats of the government. So there's not a full representative democracy. But there are a whole raft of the rights and freedoms that you would normally expect to see in a representative democracy, things like freedom of speech and, and freedom of assembly, um, and of course, the rule of law and independent judiciary and all of those package of rights and freedoms that, that you would expect to see in, in developed democracies. And it's unusual. There's not really anywhere else in the world that has this combination. Either you are, are in a place where you enjoy all those rights and freedoms as part of a democracy, or in an authoritarian state, they don't have the democracy, but they also don't have the rights and freedoms. So this unique combination, something that Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong called liberty without democracy, meant that when people in Hong Kong wanted to engage in political expression, when they wanted to pressure the government for change or, or put pressure on the government in respect of certain policies, they couldn't really uh, vote out the government or vote in a government of their choosing, but they could exercise those rights and freedoms that were protected under Hong Kong's constitution, the basic law, to go out onto the streets and protest. And this they have done um, regularly in the in the years since the handover, and sometimes to, to great effect. And perhaps the most notable example of that was in 2003, when the Hong Kong government proposed to introduce a national security law under so-called Article 23 of the Basic Law. And uh, huge public protests against that law ultimately led to that being withdrawn and it hadn't been introduced again since 2003. And that indeed was one of the things that was pushing Beijing ultimately to introduce its national security law last year. What then resulted in Hong Kong was this dynamic where people used political protest as a key means of, of political expression. And it was interesting that this also uh, reflected the identity of Hong Kong as a place different from the rest of China because it could enjoy these rights and freedoms. It was something that made Hong Kong a special place, um, something indeed that even the Hong Kong government themselves referred to as part of a package of what they called Hong Kong core values, the things that made Hong Kong special. From the residents' point of view, I think from the government's point of view, they were thinking of it more in terms of what made it special for foreign businesses and foreign investors. But it also happened to make it a special place for the people who were living here. And so by going out onto the streets to protest, they would engage in sort of a performance of this identity of displaying what it means to be a Hong Konger. I'm a Hong Konger and therefore I, I protest. And so that was sort of the underlying drivers of this ongoing culture of protest in Hong Kong, which really climaxed in the protests of 2019, which I'm sure everyone will have seen on their, on their television screens or in the news at some point, this very long protest movement that went on for half the year, weekly protests are becoming increasingly violent, increasingly confrontational, and which really developed into the single largest expression of defiance against the central government in Beijing, um, at least since the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. It reached a point of, of defiance and, and of such concern to Beijing that they really had to react. Now, what I think we're seeing in the national security law is not just a reaction to those protests of 2019 and a reaction to that perceived national security threat, but I think an attempt to change the entire political landscape in Hong Kong and to, to write that fundamental imbalance that we have between rights and freedoms and representative democracy by 
pushing down the level of rights and freedoms to a level where, where they are commensurate with the limited level of representative democracy. I think what Beijing is trying to do is to limit the capacity for uh, any kind of protest movement like we saw in 2019 to, to ever happen again in Hong Kong. And that's why we have so much of this law crafted to uh, prevent these forms of political protest and political expression. And that's why I think it's being used in the way that it has. So are there attempts now to see how far the national security law can be pushed? I'm thinking specifically about the runoff elections that happened late last year, which are now, I don't know if this is the correct word for it, invalidated, or at least you know things have been pushed ahead further to later on this year for another election, which if I remember correctly from your writings, you took part in. So can you tell me about that experience and if that is what you think is happening to protests now? Yeah, so that that was the Pan-Democrats primary elections, uh, which happened last July. And I voted along with 600,000 other people in Hong Kong, and it was a significant turnout, 600,000 turned out over the course of the weekend to, to vote in that election. The government has thankfully clarified that voting in the election, in that primary election itself, is not an act of subversion. All 600,000 of us can breathe a sigh of relief that the, that the government doesn't consider us to have committed any crime or act of subversion as a result of voting. But they have, as I said, arrested all the people who participated in and organised that primary. Now, the election that they were trying to organise themselves for itself has been delayed, and that has been delayed by the government for at least a year, but I think it's more likely to go into next year by the time that we see that election being rescheduled. And I think one of the results of all of those pan-democrat politicians having been arrested for their participation in the primary is that the government now has a, a basis to disqualify them from running in the election whenever it is ultimately held. I think because those people have been alleged to have committed this act of subversion by, by engaging in the primary, the government now has a basis to say that they are committing acts that are of a threat to national security that are not in compliance with with the basic law um, and therefore they will use that as a basis to ban them from running. So whenever those elections eventually do happen, um, it's going to be a big question mark whether any of the traditional pan-democrat politicians are going to be allowed to, to run in that election and indeed whether we're going to have to see a whole raft of new faces from the pan-democrat camp, young faces, or whether it's going to end up being an election in which basically primarily only the pro-Beijing parties participate, which might actually indeed be the kind of democracy that Beijing would prefer to see in Hong Kong. So there are reports that many people with options are now leaving Hong Kong for other countries. Is that a small story over there? As in, you know, is that just something that the foreign press are concentrating on? Are you concerned that it's going to lead to a bit of a, um, a talent drain for Hong Kong? No, it's certainly a very big story over here and a very big topic of conversation, in particular among the, the local Hong Kong community here. I think there's an interesting background to this. When you looked at the support for the protest movement in 2019, and you looked at, at surveys that were taken of sort of the demographic background of the kind of people who supported the protesters, it basically divided down into sort of two broad camps. The people who supported the government and the police and opposed the protesters were generally people of a senior age group, sort of aged 60 and above, 
or people who just received only a primary school level education. Whereas generally speaking, the people who supported the protesters and were opposed to the government were young people, sort of people aged 18 to 30, and people who'd received a tertiary education or above. And that really accorded with the, the view that you saw on the streets of young people protesting and a very large collection of the city's professional middle class supporting them, if not on the streets, then certainly morally and in other ways, financially and in kind and so on. And effectively, what the government had done by sort of taking this us or them, you're either with us or against us, sort of enemies of the people approach to dealing with the protest is that they made an enemy of not only Hong Kong's entire young generation, but a significant chunk of this professional middle class, tertiary educated, many educated overseas and tend to have Western liberal values. And what the government really was doing as a result was making enemies of the most productive portion of its population. So now here we come to, to two years later and, and the British government have now said that any Hong Kongers who have the so-called British national overseas passports will have rights to settle in the United Kingdom. Uh, various other countries such as the, the US and Australia and Canada are considering various degrees of policies to welcome immigrants from Hong Kong to come and, and stay in those countries. And many of the people who have the capacity are, are actively talking about it. And, and certainly we've just had the, the Chinese New Year holiday here over the last week. And, and many of the conversations that, that I had with friends here and, and talking to them about the kind of conversations they'd been having with their families over the holiday break, one of the biggest topics of conversation now is, will you stay or will you go? And if you're planning to go, what kind of preparations are you making? What stage is your is your planning at? And that's in particular among this younger generation who feel disillusioned about the, their future living in, in Hong Kong and among the middle class, in particular people with young children who are concerned about what's going to happen to the Hong Kong education system and what's going to happen again, what kind of a future their children will have living in Hong Kong. And they're the people that are actively discussing, uh, thinking about making plans to leave. And that will, I think, have a have a significant blow on Hong Kong, not just sort of in cold economic rationalist terms that th this is the most productive part of the economy, but also just in terms of, of the spirit of the place and, and the community. It's traumatic for any community to see significant displacement of, of people in the way that Hong Kong is seeing and the kind of emotional toll that has on people who are being forced uh, not necessarily willingly to leave their homes, or families to be separated, people starting sort of new lives in, in often difficult conditions in new countries. And so it, it's a period of trauma, uh, um, but also I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great loss for Hong Kong as well. Just on the note of uh, schooling and the education system, I did remember seeing recently a, a cartoon owl explaining the national security law. So there must be uh, concerns about how this is going to affect the public schooling there. Yes, very much. The Hong Kong Education Department uh, just last week released its guidance to Hong Kong schools on the kind of um, education programs they expected Hong Kong schools to implement to educate students on issues of national security and the national security law. And along with that, they issued a, a whole raft of guidance as to what kind of behaviour was not acceptable in Hong Kong schools and indeed advising schools to call the police if, if students engaged in acts of protest or, or chanted protest slogans or sang protest songs or or got involved in politics while on the, on the school campus. And so a very significant change coming to Hong Kong's education system that is, is causing a great deal of alarm among Hong Kong families. 
All right, just a reminder to everyone to please put your questions in the Q&A. We'll be uh, handing it over to the audience shortly. But before we do, just uh, one final question that I have here. The international community has largely been inwardly focused recently with COVID-19 related developments and uh, democratic issues in both the US and the UK and in various other countries that do exist around the world. So what has the reaction been to the Hong Kong situation and what would you realistically like to see? I think many people in Hong Kong have been grateful at the level of attention that Hong Kong has been receiving uh, internationally. Um, the Trump administration's focus on China sort of meant that Hong Kong, in a way, was sort of collateral to all of that. But the reality is, notwithstanding what many people uh, think of, of Trump and his administration, that uh, many people in Hong Kong welcomed at least his approach to China and, and what they perceived as his support for Hong Kong. Similarly, the United Kingdom with their changes to the BNO rules to facilitate Hong Kongers relocating to the UK has, has again been welcomed by people in Hong Kong. And I think that people broadly speaking here are, are happy that the international media and international governments have been paying attention to what's been happening here. I mean, I think that said, the reality is that there's very little the international community can do to convince China to change its policies. As, as China has made very clear in their public statements, they use the phrase, um, uh, Hong Kong is China's Hong Kong. And they make very clear that they regard any uh, interference or involvement by foreign governments as, a, as an interference in, in China's internal affairs and something that they are not going to tolerate. So as I say, there's very little realistically that foreign governments or others can do to change the Chinese government's policy. But I think it certainly does help that attention continues to be paid, that it's better that these things always happen in light rather than in darkness. And I think that continuing to offer support, including opportunities to relocate for those Hong Kongers who wish to do so is, is something also that, that Hong Kong people will appreciate. Thank you very much for that. We will now turn to a couple of questions from the audience we will first hear from Marilyn Gray. Marilyn, are you there? I just wanted to know, for Westerners in inverted commas, is there a future for people who have made Hong Kong their home and want to stay in Hong Kong anymore? Should they leave or should they stay? Certainly, I think many people in the expat community here have up until now felt that you know, this is not their problem as long as they don't get involved in Hong Kong politics. And I think indeed there have been some element of the expat community here who have seen, who saw the protest as, as a bit of an inconvenience and are sort of grateful that they're over. It may be a little naive of people living in Hong Kong, whether they're Westerners or, or locals, to think that they can insulate themselves from politics. I think one of the really big result of the last year or so have shown that now Hong Kong is an increasingly politicised space and that politics touches everything in Hong Kong in the same way that it does in the rest of China. So people who think they can keep on living in Hong Kong and just lie low and not get involved in politics and they'll be fine may find that politics eventually comes and finds them, especially sort of in a business context, but as we're now seeing in the context of, of the education of their children and other means. I don't think that means that there's any cause for alarm and people should immediately sort of pack up and, and flee. And, and, and notwithstanding, for example, the high-profile cases of, of local dissidents and pro-democracy politicians who've seen their bank accounts frozen, for example, that there's any immediate threat 
for the same thing happening to the, the population at large or the expat population at large. But look, certainly the political risk profile has changed here. The risk of being, for example, a, a Canadian or Australian or US citizen here when the Chinese government has various kinds of disputes with our respective governments changes the risk profile of people here. And people certainly need to be aware that um, this is no longer an apolitical space and to sort of make their decisions with all of that in mind. All that said, I don't think there's yet sort of a cause for alarm necessarily. All right. The next question that I'm going to throw to here is from James Leibold, who's from politics at La Trobe University. Do you think the Uyghur Xinjiang crisis is contributing or distracting from the troubling turn of events in Hong Kong? And can we really isolate the Hong Kong issue? Certainly, Hong Kong is part of the broader pattern of instability at the periphery of, of the Chinese empire. And that stretches from Xinjiang in the northwest through Tibet, through to Hong Kong, and indeed around to the Taiwan Straits as well and the East China Sea. And all of these fringes have seen various levels of instability and various attempts by Beijing to reassert its control in different ways or to in engage in uh, conflict with its neighbors as, as part of, uh, of reasserting its control. And I should add uh, India, the India border conflict as well as part of that. I don't think that Xinjiang necessarily distracts from Hong Kong, but I think indeed that the two issues happening at the same time help to draw the world's attention to what's happening in China. And I think it's also helped to draw the world's attention to the role of, of Chinese government influence in their own countries as well. And I think that indeed that the Hong Kong protesters can in many ways take credit for raising this issue, which seems to be an increasingly hot political issue in Australia and, and, and elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere of, of the role of Chinese commerce and the Chinese government in various countries. So I think it helps to form part of a broader picture of, of things that the wider world is, is interested in and, and concerned about and wishes to engage China in uh, in various ways. And, and Hong Kong is part of that larger picture, I think. Okay, thanks for that, James. Uh, final question for tonight, we'll go to uh, Karen Chung. Hi, Anthony. There's a saying in Hong Kong and Cantonese, which literally translates to Beijing's endgame being, keep the island and not keep the people. Having lived in Hong Kong for so many years, what's your perspective on that saying? It's an interesting saying, and I've heard the British government, or at least people supporting the British government's point of view, saying something similar, which was when they returned Hong Kong to China, they were obliged to return the land, but they weren't necessarily obliged to deliver the, the six, seven million Hong Kong people with it. There is a certain extent to which you think that Beijing would be quite happy if all these troublemakers just left Hong Kong, and then they could repopulate Hong Kong with people from across the border, and, and it could continue to serve the function that, uh, that certainly it can continues to suit Beijing's purposes to serve, which is as an economic gateway or a financial gateway between China and the rest of the world. That would, of course, make Hong Kong, in a way, unrecognizable. It would become a completely different city. And certainly, it seems, at least from the Chinese government's more recent statements, they would not indeed be happy with that. Their response to the British government's uh, offering of, of residency to B&O passport holders has been furious. And indeed, in, in retaliation, they've said they're no longer going to recognize BNO passports as a travel document. They have taken various actions which have suggested to people that there may ultimately be some attempt by Beijing to, to even prevent people from leaving Hong Kong, even if they want to, turning Hong Kong into a kind of East Berlin. This reaction from Beijing that seems to suggest that they don't necessarily want to follow that, that policy of, of, of keep the island and, and lose the people. They want to keep Hong Kong as it is, but they want a Hong Kong that looks more like what they would want it to look like, which is a place that 
that continues to be economically free and, and liberal and open to the West, but politically uh, looks a lot more like the rest of China, is not a place where it is acceptable to uh, openly question the authority of the Chinese Communist Party, for example, or to openly challenge the government. And I think that's really what Beijing's ultimate aim is, is to have a Hong Kong which is more after their heart's desire and more consistent with their with their political views of, of the world. And I think that's what really the national security law is, is aimed at doing, at socially re-engineering and reshaping Hong Kong society to make it look more like what Beijing would like it to look like. Thanks for that question, Karen. A very thoughtful and sobering point, I think, to leave it at. Uh, thanks for your time today, Anthony. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review there. They are always very appreciated. You want to say goodbye, Anthony, and uh, give your book a final plug? City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, uh, published by Scribe in Australia. You can find me on Twitter at uh, AntD, A-N-T-D, and you can subscribe to my newsletter, uh, which is AntD, A-N-T-D, dot substack, dot com. And uh, you can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith. Thanks very much, all of you, for listening tonight.